If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, and we'll consider together this morning verses 1 through 5, Micah chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. I don't know about you guys, but those earlier services were a little sleepy, so I've added a congregational participation element to the message just to evoke some type of response here in the beginning so that I can ensure you are alive and well and awake for the duration of the sermon. So I have a Bible trivia question for you, but rest easy. I think everyone is going to know. So y'all ready? In what town was Jesus, our Savior, born? This is the congregational participation element. What town was Jesus born in? Bethlehem. There you go. You're alive and well and awake, right? So we know automatically, even any that might be unlearned would know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's an element of the Christmas story that we take For granted, everyone knows, even those who don't know Jesus, know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But Matthew goes to great lengths in the Gospel of Matthew to really press at the locations involved in the early years of Jesus' life as the fulfillment of prophecy. And there's even an indication there that contemporaries to Jesus knew full well, as well as anything, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, they had good reason to know that, but there's good reason to know a variety of things on the basis of the Old Testament that were completely overlooked in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, there's this indication that Bethlehem is among those things that might be taken for granted as an element of the Messiah's birth and eventual kingship over Israel. Those locations may not seem like a huge deal to us, but Matthew takes a full chapter in Matthew chapter 2 to identify these geographic places that were a part of Jesus' early life and eventual ministry. He was born in Bethlehem. Herod sent out his mercenaries to kill the children in the area around Ramah. Weeping was heard in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph escape Herod's reign down into Egypt and eventually come back into Israel in order that the prophecy might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. And veering away from the reign of Herod Archelaus, they move to the north and the west into the region or territory of Galilee where they settle in the city of Nazareth. When you really begin to put together all of these location prophecies involved in the coming Messiah, he lives in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He is born in Bethlehem, this fledgling, insignificant city. Out of Egypt I called my son. It becomes a very difficult thing to put all of those things together in a single person. And yet that's exactly what unfolds in the life and ministry of Jesus. Where Matthew cites these places and the prophecies connected to them, he always uses the language of prophetic fulfillment, except in the instance of Micah chapter 5. No such connection is drawn. 
And, and, and obviously the connection is there. Matthew has cited the passage. What I'm suggesting to you is that the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem is so much a part of the fabric of messianic expectation that it need not be said that the king who was to come, the long-awaited king, who we now know as Jesus, would be born in the city of David. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. Verse 1. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They're striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. My origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Therefore, he will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. And the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we looked at the prophecy of Isaiah. It might be helpful to know that Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. Both Micah and Isaiah prophesied in the 8th century BC, roughly 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, if you know biblical history really well, you might know that something significant happened at the end of that 8th century. In 722, the Assyrian Empire invaded the northern territory of Israel, conquered the northern territory of Israel, and carried many Israelites away captive into exile. Now, this is not the later exile of 586 when Jerusalem is ransacked and the temple is destroyed. This is an earlier exile. In fact, the Assyrians would do more <clears throat> than simply carry away some of the Israelites. They would carry away Israelites, but they would also repopulate the region with peoples from other conquered territories. They did this to dilute the cultural heritage of a people in order to diminish their sense of attachment to something that had unfolded in the past to further subjugate the people of that area. This was a cataclysmic upheaval in the Northern Territory. Now, don't think that this is just an insignificant thing. Ten of Israel's 12 tribes were carried away captive in the Assyrian invasion. And the effects of this Assyrian invasion and the repopulation of that territory are still being felt in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The result of the repopulation with other nations and what remained of Israel were the people known as the Samaritans in the gospel accounts. So what's unfolding at the time of Micah and Isaiah's prophecies is a major upheaval in the land of Israel. This is one of the most embarrassing episodes in her history. And it's into that context that Micah now comes to speak. Now, the likelihood is you haven't been involved recently in an in-depth analysis of the prophecy of Micah. 
But if you were, you'd note that there's this consistent pattern that runs throughout. Often, Micah is moving from doom and gloom to hope and promise, from despair and destruction to restoration and hope. There's this death-to-life pattern all throughout the prophecy of Micah. Now, the interesting thing is that God has often moved according to that same pattern. He often does his greatest work against the backdrop of great darkness and difficulty. Here, Micah is speaking to a people who in some cases are being carried away. Others are remaining behind as citizens of the southern kingdom, but they are sore afraid of the possibility of an Assyrian invasion as far south as the city of Jerusalem. And in the midst of their despair, Micah has a word of hope. Micah holds forth the promise that on the other side of this hardship, on the other side of these dark days, is the promise of a king who will be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Verse 1. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. All a reference to the Assyrian invasion and the fear associated with this period. He goes on to say in verse 1, they are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. The terminology for judge here is is used in the Hebrew for rhetorical purposes. There's a word play in the background of our passage, but it's a reference to the king of Israel. And here it's said that they're striking the king of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Now this is not the kind of striking that's intended to inflict a great deal of physical harm. This is the kind of striking that's intended to insult. You may remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if someone strikes you on your cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. The the principle in the passage and the teaching of Jesus is not to prohibit self-defense. In fact, I tend to think the Bible's in favor of it. The idea is if someone insults you, you're not to return the insult with some act of violence. There's an element of violence to what is unfolding in the passage. You've been struck on the cheek with a rod. But more forcefully, the intent of the action is to insult the king. And by connection, to insult those the king represents. It's just a doubling down on the reality that this is an embarrassing moment in Israel's history. Things are just about as bad as they can conceivably be. And it's into that darkness that Micah casts the light of messianic hope. Verse 2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is a way of distinguishing Bethlehem, which is five miles from the old city of Jerusalem, from other Bethlehems in Israel. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you. To be ruler over Israel for me, his origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, small among the clans of Judah. There may be a subtle gospel lesson that we could learn from the sheer fact that God would be pleased to use Bethlehem of Ephrathah to give birth to the son of David, who is the son of God, our eternal Messiah. If you were to poll people, if you're just looking at a map 800 years before the birth of Jesus, or even in the time of Jesus, for that matter, 
and you are looking to identify places that might give rise to the kind of king that Israel was anticipating, Bethlehem would have not been the place you would have picked. We tend to think of these cities in the Bible, like when you think of Jerusalem in the Bible, like you think Memphis with camels. But that is not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about much smaller population numbers. We're talking about in Bethlehem, hundreds of people in this fledgling community, five miles removed from Jerusalem. Now, five miles doesn't seem like a big deal for us. We get in cars and go places. And in extreme places, we get in airplanes and go places. But five miles traveling the terrain around the city of Jerusalem was an, a, a considerable distance. It, this, is, this is like having to drive to Tupelo to find a Walmart, right? It's going to take you a little while to get there. Here, here's this, this place out here that seems to bear little significance and yet that's the place God is going to use to bring forth the Messiah. This is the MO of our God. He always manages to find a way to take the weak and the foolish things to bind the strong and confound the wise. I said there's a gospel lesson there because you and, not, you and I are not unlike the city of Bethlehem in this regard. God did not choose you because he was impressed with you. God did not choose you because you were wiser or smarter or more handsome or stronger, because your resume was better, because your grandfather was a deacon, because you were religious in some external way. No, in fact, you didn't have anything to commend you to God like unto the city of Bethlehem. And in spite of that, God chose to move, chose to move in an act of sheer grace to save you and I from our sin. It's an incredible thing to consider. It's, it's not just that you don't bring anything to the table. It's that you're actually a detriment. You are a net negative. And yet God has been pleased to invade human history to save us from our sins. I was talking to a friend this week about the influence of the church in a community. I don't know how much you think about the societal influence of the church, but it's considerable when the church is healthy and focused on the gospel. Think of this. We are, by confession, as a church, roughly 1,500 of the worst Hernando has to offer. And yet God is holding us together and, and working in us by the abiding presence and power of His Holy Spirit to righteous outcomes, to positive outcomes. In good ways, God is striking a straight lick with a crooked stick. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Now, Micah and Isaiah are prophesying at roughly the same time. We looked last week at this 
reality, this theological bombshell that Isaiah drops. Until the time of Isaiah, it was crystal clear that what Israel needed, indeed what we need, is a son of David as our king. But for the first time with crystal clarity, Isaiah 9 tells us that what we need is not just a son of David, but the very son of God, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our prince of peace to move in our midst. That's what we most desperately need, not just the son of David, but the very son of God to come and to lord over all of heaven and earth. Now, Micah is not that clear, but his reference here to the divine nature of the son of David is only thinly veiled. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. There is only one for whom that reference fits. Verse 3, the Bible says, therefore, he will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. The rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly despairing expression. He will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. One, note here that for Israel, her hope was in the future. Micah is painfully honest about the difficulty that lies ahead. But notes that on the other side of this painful experience is the promise of a Messiah who makes all things right. Israel's hope was in the future. But please note that as we consider these verses this morning as a church, we do so in retrospect. Our hope as the church is rooted in the past not with future expectation of what God will do, although that's an element, but with the knowledge of what God has done in our past. We are here today because a king has been born in Bethlehem, because that king fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, because our king has gone to Calvary's cross to bear the burden of our sin, and the penalty we could not pay. We are here this morning because a king born in Bethlehem gave his life and three days later was raised from the dead. Our hope as the church is rooted in the history now of what God has done. But that is not to say it does not have present implication. You and I live with living hope because of what God has done in the past. Jesus is actively ruling and reigning over all the earth right now. Right now, Jesus is lording over all the earth. We, we needn't speak exclusively of a time when Jesus will reign, but rest entirely in the notion that Jesus is actively reigning right now. We finished a few months ago now a series in the book of Revelation. And, and I've preached through Revelation before and, and gave years as a doctoral student to the study of, of the book of Revelation. It's one of my favorites. I just love it. 
Usually when we're going through a sermon series, the church thinks of how it stands to be shaped, how you as an individual stand to be shaped, but I'm not sure that church folks often consider how their pastor is shaped by certain series of sermons. But I got to tell you, it was just transformative for me in a couple of different ways. Maybe not the discovery of entirely new biblical truths or principles, but the taking to heart of some very foundational truths, namely the active lordship of Jesus over all of our life at this very moment. When Jesus says in resurrection glory to those disciples gathered in Galilee, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. That's not some far off distant concept or or speculation, or prophetic pronouncement. That is a declarative statement of absolute truth. Jesus is actively ruling and reigning over every part of our life at the present hour, which means that even when it looks like with eyes of sight that darkness is prevailing, even when I can't, can't trace the work of his hand or comprehend his ways in the moment, that he is actively orchestrating every world event, every moment of my life for my good and for his great glory. For the church, our hope is rooted in the past. Our hope is alive in the present. And just assuredly as Jesus has come born in a Bethlehem manger, dear friend, he is coming again. There is coming a day when we are able to see with eyes of sight the physical presence of the one who bled and died for us. I've mentioned over the course of this brief Christmas series this looming problem over the narrative arc of the Bible. We have sinned, been separated from a righteous God, and the question that provides us with is this. How will a righteous God restore to himself an unrighteous people without in some way compromising his integrity or righteousness? And the answer is Jesus. We tend to see that and focus there. But I want to tell you, there there is another issue that looms over the narrative arc of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is in effect making for himself a home of the world he has created. And he delights in the fellowship of his created subjects in this world until sin enters in and contaminates the sanctuary of God. Perhaps the most pressing question that's looming over the narrative arc of the Bible is how it is that God will once again sanctify his temple in order that he might might enter in and once again walk in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day? And the answer to the second question, as with the first, is by the sanctifying power of the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when this earth is quite literally the footstool of our God, when we see with eyes of sight what we have experienced with eyes of faith, when we walk in the the tender fellowship of Jesus in the cool of the garden in the best part 
of the day. For the church, our hope is rooted in the past, it is alive in the present, and it looks forward to the future promise of a Messiah in our midst. If you go back to verse 3 again, Micah is honest about the hardship that lies yet ahead. He will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Some understand that to be a direct reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Others understand that more broadly to be a reference to Israel who gives birth to a Messiah. But in either case, it is clear that Bethlehem of Ephrathah will be the birthplace of the anointed one. It's so clear that even the wicked counselors of Herod in Matthew chapter 2 understood full well that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Therefore, he will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. There's a couple of ways of understanding this idea of his brothers returning It can be a reference to the people of Israel who've been dispersed across the civilized world by virtue of life circumstance. When the Messiah comes, all of true Israel will return to Israel. But more likely, and I think the proper interpretation, is all the brothers of Israel is a way of making reference to people of every tongue and tribe and nation. True Israel, by faith in Jesus, being gathered from the four winds, of the world gathered together around the throne of the one who would bleed and die and be raised again that we might know the gift of everlasting life. Here, the brutal honesty of he will abandon them until an appointed time is followed by the promise of God moving in great power, affording the people of Israel a future hope. Often, God is pleased to speak and move and these reassuring, encouraging kinds of ways? Haven't you experienced a keen sensitivity to the leadership of God's spirit, the voice of God, so to speak, in the hospital bed or the funeral home or sitting by the deathbed of a friend or a loved one? Here God meets Israel in her despair and offers comfort and encouragement and hope. Yet again, there may be gospel message for us. Jesus never promised us a bed of roses. He never said this life by faith in him would be sunshine and rainbows. Indeed, Jesus said, take up the cross, an implement of death, and follow after me. But at the same time, it is eternally true that for the believer, there is always the promise of a better and brighter tomorrow by faith in Jesus Christ. The rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd them. Last week we considered a little bit Ahaz, the king of Judah, who cowered in fear. The kings of Israel had trembled for decades at the prospect of an Assyrian invasion. They had failed to provide for the protection of Israel in the north, and they had failed to provide for the protection of Judah in the south. There is one coming, one who will be born in Bethlehem, Micah says, who will stand, who is able to afford for our protection, who is able to meet all our needs according to his riches and glory, who has never trembled in fear, 
and who has never shrank back from the challenge. He will stand. And he will shepherd his people. As a shepherd tenderly cares for the needs of his sheep, so too this one, strong and mighty, would gently, tenderly care for the needs of his subjects. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh, his God. Yahweh is the proper name for God. There are a number of ways the Bible makes reference to God. There is the most broad, generic name for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, which usually translates as God. And then there's Adonai and other expressions often translated as Lord, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. And occasionally, reading along in your English translation, you might see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a way of expressing in the English translation that the proper name of God has been used in the Hebrew text. It's the name Yahweh that God assigns to himself. It is God's self-identification in Exodus chapter 3. God meets with Moses at the burning bush, and he commissions Moses to go and to lead the people of Israel out of their Egyptian bondage. And Moses, being the reluctant mediator, says, God, when I, I tell them and they ask who sent me, what will I say? And God says, you tell them, I am, Yahweh has sent me. There's this passage in Philippians chapter 2 that speaks of the Christmas event. It's really a song. Most New Testament scholars believe it's a hymn that was sang in the early church. But Paul cites it, calling for humility within the Philippian church. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who though considering it not robbery to be equal with God. I've always found the language of that translation somewhat odd. What it means is it was not unjust that Christ would be considered equal with God. He is equal with God. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the bright radiance of God's glory. In him, the fullness of the Godhead comes to dwell bodily. It was not unjust that Jesus would be counted as equal with God. Nevertheless, he would clothe himself in flesh, take the form of a servant, and subject himself to obedience even to the point of death on the cross in order that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he would be given the name which is above every name. Now, most people read that passage and assume that Jesus is the name above every name, but that is not the point of those verses. The name which is above every name is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jesus is given the self-identified name of God himself. His exaltation, the work of his humiliation and crucifixion and eventual resurrection, in order that at that name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess 
It's precisely the thing being described in verse 4 of Micah chapter 5. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh and in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. If you missed the international missions interest of our God in the previous verse, it cannot be mistaken here in verse 4. What God is doing in the sending forth of his son, the birth of a king in Bethlehem signals that God has done something that cannot be bound to the city of Bethlehem, nor encompassed by the vast city of Jerusalem nor kept within the borders of Israel. What God has done in the sending forth of his only son Jesus is to explode any national limitation whatsoever on the message of the gospel. He now moves through his son Jesus, gathering together a people of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation, of every ethnic background, of every culture, of every socioeconomic place on the ladder. He is gathering together for himself a new and a true Israel by faith in his son, Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Can't you rejoice in that? It's a signal to us that this business of a son of David who is the son of God is not just the most pressing need for Israel, it is the most pressing need for all humanity. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will rule. He will reign. Stated from our past tense perspective, he is ruling. He is reigning. His dominion extends to the very ends of the earth. Now, when you settle that, when you get that, what it results in is described in a single sentence in the first part of verse 5. He will be their peace. The way we would express this, by the way, is to say, Jesus is our peace. He's not going to be our peace. He doesn't have the potential to be our peace. Jesus is our peace. If that ever gets down into the cracks and crevices of your heart, into the marrow of your bones, it is a transformative thing. I was talking to a friend between the first couple of services just about the way we go through life. It's just a cycle of anxiety and relief, anxiety and relief. And you go into a season and you're wondering how I can survive this, how am I going to get through this, this is just going to be a disaster. And then in, in moments sometimes, in days sometimes, in weeks sometimes, sometimes in years, we look back and we wonder how we could have ever doubted that God would bring us through safe and sound and secure. And then within moments, days, or weeks, we start it all over again. And it's just the product of our inability to lay hold with all of our heart of the notion 
that Jesus is our peace. He's got it all taken care of. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Now for Israel, the peace most immediately in view would have been peace from enemy opposition, rest from the prospect of an Assyrian invasion. And he'll do that too. In fact, our most formidable foe has been conquered through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. In our time together tonight, for those who weren't here last night, we'll look at just a single sentence in 1 John 3, 8, where the Bible says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And boy, did he ever. I mean, you can almost envision in your mind's eye Satan and all of the minions of hell poised, prepared, postured, ready to pounce at the crucifixion of the only begotten Son of God. But boy, what a surprise were they in for when on the third day the stone would roll away and the living Lord Jesus Christ would walk out holding the keys to death and hell and the grave. He is our peace. Jesus would establish peace between God and man through the blood of his cross. The answer to this great conundrum, how will God restore to himself an unrighteous people without in any way infringing upon his perfect righteousness? The answer is found in Jesus. The penalty for your sin and for my sin would be paid in full. Jesus would drink the bitter cup of God's wrath against us to the very last drop in order that we might have peace with God. Peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus grants peace in the present by virtue of his sovereign reign. He is Lord, and dear friend, he is trustworthy. I just wonder, I just wonder sometimes if there isn't some psychological effect to our efforts at mimicking the promises of the Old Testament always stated, or at least almost always stated, in the future tense with regards to what we expect of Jesus. And I just want to say to you this morning, I just want to press at this idea, if you could just internalize this little bit of the message, that so much of what God promised he would do in the sending of the Messiah is done. As the church, our hope is rooted in the past. It is alive in the present. And it is packed with anticipation and expectation as to what our future holds. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, for the insight that Micah affords us, God, for the, the ability to reflect from this side of the cross. And not just at what you will do, God, but what you have done. God, I pray that, that what we're able to observe in history will serve to further cement our confidence as to what you are doing in the present and what you will do in the future. Help us, Lord, to rest as your subjects under your sovereign rule. Grant the peace that passes all understanding, even in the face of great distress, God. Help our hearts to be at ease. Lord, may you receive all the glory and the praise. Our great King and Messiah, our Savior, we love you, Lord. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name.